In the Trauma-Informed Education podcast, you can get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to our Trauma-Informed PBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. That's tipbs.com. Education. I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. Today we speak with Dr. Susan Craig. Susan is a lifelong student of early trauma and its effects on children's learning. Her teaching experience, as well as years of on-site training and technical assistance to school districts throughout the country, provides a context for her advocacy for trauma-sensitive educational reform. Her books, Reaching and Teaching Children Who Hurt, Strategies for Your Classroom, 2008, and Trauma-Sensitive Schools, Learning Communities Transforming Children's Lives, 2015, are bestsellers amongst teachers and administrators who use them to guide their efforts to make schools more accessible to children with challenging behaviours. I hope you find this interview useful. Okay, so Susan, can you tell us about your background and what led you to work with um, teachers and educators in trauma-informed practice? I was actually a classroom teacher for a while and then a special education teacher. And then I became a reading specialist. And I found very quickly on many of the kids that couldn't read by third grade also had really pretty awful home lives. And so I was happy enough to be able to go to the University of New Hampshire where Murray Strauss, who was a big name in child abuse research, was giving doctoral degrees. So I studied with him for six years and I wrote my dissertation on the effects of trauma on children's cognition. And believe it or not, what we identified in that study came to be the areas that they then identified with MRI technology when they were able to take pictures of the brain. So the self-regulatory areas, language, memory, um, attention. So that kind of convinced me that that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, but getting people, nobody would pay you for like professional development or anything on trauma. They just didn't have anything to do with schools. So I did inclusion training for about 20 years. And then of course, once you got in the school, that's all they wanted to talk about were the kids with the challenging behaviors that they couldn't include anywhere because they were so upset all the time. So I kind of got in through the back door and, um, so I've been working with school with teachers professionally for about 35 years, and I love it. I mean, I really love training teachers. I know some people don't, but I really love to train teachers. I just think they're, they're on the battleground every day, and nobody really gives them very much attention to what they're really doing, I think. So no, that'll no. be the time when I'm with them. Oh, great. Thank you. So, also, yeah, go on. You're welcome. Yeah, no, go on. Well, I was just going to say that I also think that if it could be explained to teachers that most of what's good practice in education has absolute application to kids with traumatized backgrounds, that they don't, they need to be told that. I mean, it's not that traumatized kids need so much different things, but they need 
a very consistent use of what best practices are for all kids. I mean, you can't just do it 50% of the time. You really have to hang in there with them pretty much 90% of the day with good you know, best practices. So I try to talk, because I think it's important for them to know that they're not being asked to be a social worker. They're asked, being asked to be the best teacher they can be to these kids. And that, I think that gives them a comfort level. Yeah. So. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So, uh, why do you think that it's really important for teachers to understand trauma-informed practice? I think it's really important because, at least in the United States, four out of ten kids are thought to have had at least one trauma event by the time they get to school. So, in a class of 30 kids, you probably have three or four that have been hurt that way. And if they're treated poorly in terms of discipline and self-management, they're not going to heal. Whereas if you can really explain to teachers, this is how you talk to them, this is how you recorrect them so that their prefrontal cortex continues to grow, they really can make it to adolescence in fairly good shape. Um, but the only people that have access to kids like that are teachers. They've got them six hours a day. So they're in the they're in the really important seat in all of this. So, and I think the kids get us difficult to manage once teachers know how to manage them well. And I think that's rewarding to the teachers. You know, if they're not raising their voice at them, if they're not um, treating them in a way that um, further inflames them, then the classroom itself becomes more pleasant for everybody, including the teacher. Yes. Absolutely. So what are some of the things that teachers can keep in mind when they're trying to set those limits with children, with trauma, with regard to their behaviour? I think one of the things is that they need to be very aware of, kind of know what the symptoms of trauma are and anticipate that at any given time, those symptoms are going to show up and that they have to, it's kind of like, behavior management but you're anticipating what might happen and you have the resources in place so that when it does happen it's already taken care of i always tell teachers it's like the hotel industry that they have universal design they have all the doorknobs the people that have bad wrists can't turn and they have the toilets that are high and they they don't wait for people to show up before they buy that equipment it's there anticipating that some of their guests are going to need it and the teachers need to do the same thing in terms of creating a trauma-safe environment around discipline and self-management so that all the kids might not need it, but there are going to be some that show up that really do need it, and it's already in place. So I think that's a good way to teach any kid, to really mm -hmm. kind of, if you've got 10-year-olds, these are what 10-year-olds are like. So how do I make a classroom where they're going to be successful more times than not? And so what it, it's a hard sell a little bit because I think I just think sometimes people think trauma and they think big awful stuff as opposed to kids that are just not paying attention. Like I know in high school kids, kids that have been traumatized are the kids that have their hoodies up and they're not paying attention. But if you're saying they're not paying attention and they're not motivated, this doesn't really give you anything to work with to make the situation better. And if you can explain it to them, no, this is really what a kid that 
has given up, it looks like. And you could begin to partner with the kid as an ally. Like I try to tell teachers that they should stand next to their kids instead of in front of them so that they're really having a conversation with them as a collaborator rather than as somebody that's more judgmental. Because I think that body language is really important, especially as the kids get older. Uh, I don't know if it's true in Australia, but in the United States, teenagers are the most victimized group of people. They're victimized more than any other demographic, which, frankly, I was a little bit taken aback by that. Mm. But they're victims of crime, and they're also victims of peer violence. Yeah, that's, that's really Somehow I don't think our high schools are particularly trauma sensitive. I haven't been in many that are. Yeah. No, I, 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 and I don't know the answer to that. I, I'm assuming we tend to follow similar and mirror similar trends to yourself. So I wouldn't be surprised if our statistics were equally similar. And I know that we do, in my work with challenging behaviour, um, that it is, we find much much greater difficulty trying to bring our secondary schools together and on board and everybody talking the same language and, and, and right. displaying the same practice, much more difficult. In well, a, just even a, if they yeah. all have different, they teach like kids could have four or five different teachers. That alone is something that is a real challenge to a kid that's out of trauma history. Yes. You know, but that's, our schools are all set up like that. Yeah. Um, and there's not a lot of empathy for teenagers. <laughs> no, no. You know, they're big and ungainly and they have <laughs> they should know better. And just not... <laughs> yes, yes. They're not four-year-olds that are kind of cute. You know? Yes, yes, they yes, they tend to have that that cute little 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 people thing going, don't they? So what are, do you have you got any um, sort of really practical, um, handful of, of practical strategies for the teacher to use their best practice and to, to make that consistent, safe, supportive space for the child with trauma? Yes, I, I'm a firm believer, believer in differentiated instruction. And so I really try to teach teachers that if they do formative assessments with their kids before they design their lessons for the week, they will have all the personalization that they need because they'll be getting from the kids. How is it that you want to learn this? And it'll make the kids kind of feel like they're part of the collaboration as opposed to just being told to do something. So formative assessment, I think, is something that teachers could do once a week, every week. And I'm always very cranky with teachers about the fact that I said, every one of you, when you went to school, was told you should end every class with five minutes of reflection in summary, right? And they all say, oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, how many of you do that? How many of you spend the last five minutes of your class having kids think about what they just did? And of course, nobody does. No. Run into the buses, no. <laughs> right, right down the home. Or, so I always, I always tell them, if you can just do one thing, that's the one thing you should try to do is uh, just have kids have a little bit of time to reflect on who they are and what they did. Formative assessment, I think, is really big. Um, I think having some kind of a class meeting with kids at least once a day, if not twice, is really important to build community. Um, and then I talk to them a lot about um, the Columbia Education School design where the teacher talks for less than 10 minutes and then the kids collaborate for 10 to 15 minutes. 
and the pacing goes like that. So it's 10 minutes of instruction, 10 to 12 minutes of collaboration. And that to me is very powerful for kids with trauma histories because one of the things they don't have a very good handle on is representational thought. It's really hard for them to think that you're thinking about them when they're not there. They, they don't carry it around in their head that people really think about me when I'm not there and that they have thoughts that are different than mine. They really need to be taught about that. And so the collaboration in the small groups is a really good way to practice that on a regular basis. Because um, I think all of the stuff that winds up being mental health is basically a cognitive issue. <laughs> they don't, they're lacking some really basic cognitive skills that prohibit them from processing the world as it happens to them. So they kind of make the same mistakes over and over again, it seems. Um, and then, of course, self-regulation, trying to get teachers to, instead of kind of telling kids not to do things, to do things because it's a rule of the classroom, to train them more to think about themselves as learning how to regulate their own body and taking breaks about every 45 minutes or so to just stand up and move or stretch. But again, that's just best practice. I mean, it's not... It's great for trauma kids, but it's also great for everybody else too. So it's not it's not rocket science and they haven't taught it before. <laughs> so nice. No, get just... done with six hours, you know, and they say, Well, what strategies have you got? And I said, Well, you got about twelve pages of notes there. Every one of them has a strategy. Just go home and use it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So a lot of it's about making them aware that they have got this the strategies already. Right. And that's yeah, they need to really focus on their good their quality practice rather than seeking out something off the shelf that they think is going right, right. to solve their problem. Mm. I have begun to talk to teachers quite a bit about using their uh, voice and their speech intentionally. Like I, I, especially for high school kids, I said you're wasting a great resource if what you're saying to the child and how you say it isn't and somehow directed by the goals you have for him or her. In other words, like, you should be like a therapist. What people say in therapy tends to be directed and intentional and not just kind of flying off the window. And I, I think we as teachers really need to do more of that. I think good teachers do it almost by default. They just know inside themselves that that's how you deal with kids. But, you know, like in middle school, when you see people telling kids jokes that they don't get and, you know, <laughs> wasting time and making people nervous. I just think we could be much more intentional in terms of how we speak to children. Yes, yeah, and, and stop and think about it. So what what is, um, you were talking about high school children and, and our adolescents being the most victimised. So what knowing what, you would know about adolescence and what the research is telling us. How is there anything in addition to what you've already discussed? How we can best support those adolescents, adolescent high school folk? I've seen some things that uh, recommendations for like having a formal mentoring program that each adolescent has a mentor that they attach to and meet with at least once a day. Right. Uh, and advisory groups and having teachers move into some roles where they can help kids problem solve, not just academic problems, but just social problems. In other words, I think the recommendations look a lot like what you would see in an upper elementary school. 
but they're just toned up a little bit to kind of absorb the adolescent energy. But um, much more of a contact with teachers in a collaborative way um, instead of I don't the teachers that I see in high school. I don't mean to misrepresent them, but they still are doing lectures. I mean they're they teach like people taught when I went to high school, as opposed to, you don't see as much of that at the elementary level anymore. No, <laughs> no and, and you're right. That's, I think, from my experience, that can be quite similar here. The students tend to be taught at, <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah, so. I think mm. Service learning is, I think, something else that really needs to be looked at in high schools, especially because kids that have a trauma history, one of the ways that they heal is to develop kind of a service relationship with somebody that needs something, like um, kids with developmental disabilities or kids that just have a, a need that they can help them meet. And I think that a good service learning program in high school would be great for kids, that they could be you know, working with the elderly, they could be working in the community, and just kind of expanding who they are in terms of a self that has something to offer. Uh, because the self, that lack of individuation and selfhood with little kids looks like they don't know how to play and they, they need a lot of help kind of creating a sense of agency. But by adolescents, I mean, we're now talking about these people are looking for partners. <laughs> They're looking to form kind of long-standing relationships. So they need a few more tools to work with, I think, and a lot more practice. Because they make silly mistakes because nobody is kind of mentoring them quite the level that they probably need it. Yes. Uh, that, yeah, that's really interesting to think of it that way. I've never really thought about how do adolescents play. You know, being an early childhood teacher, as you said, we we teach how to take turns and share the sandpit toys and all of that. But how does a 15-year-old, what's their version mm -hmm. of play? Yeah, that's, that's yeah. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. I, think you, I think you can teach adolescents how to be resilient using the word resiliency. I mean, I think you can actually have like a subgroup of kids, but that's what you talk about. And if you want to be resilient, this is what it looks like. These are the behaviors that go with it. And so let's practice a few. I think scouting actually does quite a good job of that. Like yes. To do that. Yeah. Just teach it explicitly and show them what it looks like and sounds like. Right. Yeah. So just um, thinking about whole school approaches. So what, what do the leadership um, teams in schools, what's some of the key things that they need to know to, to you know, promote this whole school approach? I think they need to, uh, the principals have to be physically present and active in this whole thing. Uh, and they have to be, modeling some of the behaviors that you want to see the teachers modeling, like speaking to the kids when they see them in the hallway, which nobody does in the American schools. They just walk by them. Um, and I think they need to have a, like a steering committee that's composed of teachers from different grade levels and probably a school guidance counselor or something where they really write a plan. Like I did a workshop a while ago where I basically talked about creating a trauma-sensitive schools from the point of view of managing complex change and telling them that they first have to come up with a vision statement that defines trauma-sensitive schools that they all can buy into, which 
you know what schools are like that could take two years uh, <laughs> but it's like it's not a good thing if one person thinks trauma-sensitive schools is this and the people across the hall have a totally different idea because they're never going to give the kids the predictability that they need and then they need some skills they need skills at collaboration which again i think is something that um, we assume teachers know how to do, but I'm not sure we've given them enough training and no. how to do it. And resources. I had, I had 500 people in Chicago last week, and many of them were principals. And so I said, I've got one thing to say to you principals, because the one resource these people need for trauma-sensitive schools is they need time to meet. And you can have all sorts of lofty visions, and you can have that, but if you don't give these poor souls 45 minutes once a week to meet, they're not going to get anything done because that to me is a real weakness and even like how we deal with kids with disabilities people never can come to a whole team meeting because there's never any coverage oh. so you get part of what somebody says but you don't get the whole story and you don't get the flavor of the team so that's that's my feeling about there's a lot of structural things that the principal and administration can do that really facilitates what they're asking the teachers to do and then I've also recommended that they identify as outcomes as to whether or not trauma-sensitive schools are working, outcomes that can be linked to their full school evaluation plan. Like they, everybody takes um, records on how many people are truant, how many people are late. So yep. if this is working, the lateness should go down and people shouldn't be truant as much. And there also should be some beginning spike in uh, academic achievement, especially in reading and math. And so instead of having their, a whole evaluation system for just trauma-sensitive approaches, I recommend that they integrate those goals into what they're already doing. That just saves time and it, it makes it feel more like school. Mm. And it also does a great deal, doesn't it, to stop that huge divide between behaviour and academic and the fact that some folks Certainly. still believe that they're two very separate things instead of right. learning. So I think in the beginning, it's just hard to get teachers to buy, teachers of a certain age to buy into this. It's not a mental health thing we're doing here. We're trying to improve, I mean, we really are trying to improve test scores, trying to teach kids how to read. Yeah. <laughs> they have all this other stuff going on, but they can't learn how to read. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So do you um, have any advice or talk to teachers much how, how to uh, sort of be able to integrate their social-emotional learning in their practice? Because we seem to, at the moment, be thinking of things in little compartmental boxes at the moment. Yes. That seems to be compartmentalised very nicely here. It looks like a totally different mm. animal. When I talk to them about the intentional, using their voice and their speech and language intentionally, I bring it in there a lot. That everything you're saying to these kids, you're basically modeling a social skill or you're teaching them how to deal with their own emotions. And I encourage teachers to talk about emotionally, this is kind of pretend, I don't want them crying in front of the classroom, but if they're feeling particularly optimistic or something, that they need to tell the kids what that feels like and ask them, how do you ever feel optimistic? Do you even know what that means? Because I really think half the kids we've got in front of us haven't got a clue as to how to define maybe happy, sad, or they can do those two. But after that, it's like 
they don't have a good understanding of emotional the emotional field they can go no, through. I... Um, so and I think teachers have a lot of power to do that because whether whether they know they're doing it or not, however the teacher is treating the kids is how the kids are learning, it's how you treat other people. I mean, if you're being cranky to the kids, they're learning it's okay to be cranky um, to their pals. So, um, and I also try to get them to see that if they really look at what they're teaching content-wise, there's not a story that's been written for a reader in the whole world, I don't think, that you couldn't use to teach something social, emotional. I mean, there's always some kid that's having a hard time or there's somebody that's really, so you can really use characters and books a lot. And certainly, social studies, you can certainly go off on quite a few tangents about social, emotional things, talking about what's going on with people in the world right now. Like, what do you think it's like to be in Syria now? You know, mm. Mm. how do you think both kids are feeling? So that it's not discreet, that, it, that, that she's, he or she is integrating it into the real world. Yes, and, and modeling it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things that I guess we're thinking about in the work that we do at the moment is, well, we've got all of this information about teachers supporting students with trauma and making their environment safe and supportive and caring. What about the teacher self-care, you know, and, and the, the teacher looking after um, themselves? Do you... Watching after themselves, like taking care of themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their own so, mental health and resilience and their self care and. Right. I, last week when I had the 500 people, I don't usually say this, but it's true. <laughs> I said, some people might not, they go to therapy. I said, because it's really hard to have 30 kids who are traumatized in front of you all day and you need somebody to talk to besides your poor partner or husband. Yes. He doesn't want to hear the story. <laughs> He's heard it already. And they all, I was surprised. They got, I got quite a few nods on that. I think, you know, there's groups online that you can join to support each other. I said, you can't skip lunch because, of course, teachers never eat lunch and they never take a half hour. I said, you really need to take care of yourself physically and emotionally and spiritually. So... Mm. And, yeah. you know, again, some of them do, and others, they just keep locking it on, and they get burned out. Mm. Uh, it seems to have not missed many people's notice, though, that the attrition rate in teachers one to five years is so high that the principals last week talked a lot about that, like how to take care of the teachers so they want to come back. Uh, because there is such a high rate of attrition. Right. Yeah, and it's particularly so in poor schools. Um, so we got, I guess, greater complexity and challenge upon challenge. Mm. Well, and I think I don't think we prepare teachers in pre-service necessarily to know what they're really going to be up against. Almost because if there's too much, there's too much they have. They have to know a lot. Yes. Yes. So yes. We tend to just yeah. <laughs> avoid <Hammer it>. off. <laughs> So we'll just finish off, Susan. With, uh, go on. Pardon? I just said, is this what you want to have happening between you and I? Yes. 
Okay. All right. Just yeah, no, you're fine. I was just going to say, we'll just finish off with a um, final question about what are you cu currently curious about in your work? So what are you um, really curious about finding out or developing further or? Well, I have two things I'm kind of curious about, more than two, but the one I'm curious about is, is this going to be able to take off in high school? Is there going to be a way of getting it to be present in high school? And then I'm also curious to see that the kids that are, that are in trauma-sensitive schools for the bulk of their years, if their academics profiles really improve. I'm very curious about that because I think they will. Mm. Um, I had a woman the other day ask me, she wants to write a book on managing trauma in secondary like high, colleges, not high schools, but she's the president of a college. And she said the number of kids that come in as students have really horrible histories and they get to be in the middle of their sophomore year and they don't know what to do with those histories, which kind of made me sad. Mm. Is that true where you are too? Do you see that? Yes. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Um, wow. There's, yeah, there's a lot of um, kids that are, um, yeah, want, yeah, sort of lost and a and adrift, and it's really, really quite sad. And it, and it's not knowing where to begin, you know. And like you've said, we've just got to breathe and take some time and rely on our right. teaching practice, and and not think we can't because it's not. You know, or waved with twinkly lights on it in front of you, you right. know, sort of <laughs> marketed as the latest new thing. It's it's inherently if you you know, you're a good teacher, then you've got all the tools that you need. You just sometimes don't right. know they're there. Right. Mm. Well, thank you very much. It's been lovely talking to you. I really, really, nice really to talk to you too. It. Is there anything else? Yeah. I mean I'd uh, are you writing any new books that we need to look for or I am actually I'm writing a book on strategies because Teachers College Press decided that they want a book that had strategies in the title so strategies for teachers in trauma sensitive schools oh wonderful but it's pretty much yeah um, oh we'll have to look out for that one on math, chapter on reading a chapter on math and then one on social emotional learning and differentiated instruction so it's 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 going to be very kind of grounded in best practices and then I'm just going to tell them this is what this looks like with a child that's got a trauma history oh great and be, we'll it'll it be yeah that'll be great it'll be great to see chapter on maths and reading and that really close link because often it's all about the behavior and the social emotional right. regulation but you don't often right. see reading and math come into it. Yeah. But that's why I thought it's time to do the, the real academic topics now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, we look forward to that. That sounds terrific. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time today. It was great. Yes, and thank you. Thank you for giving us your time as well. That was our interview with Dr. Susan Craig. To get access to the links and resources mentioned in the interview, please visit www.tipbs.com. If you are enjoying listening to our show, 
please rate and review us on iTunes. Your ratings make all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.